Hello, friends, and welcome to the Learner's Corner Podcast. My name is Caleb Mason, and I am so honored that you have decided to spend part of your day here with me in the Learner's Corner. Today, my guest is Sky Jatani, and I'm going to talk with him about his recently released book called What If Jesus Was Serious About the Church? Now, if this happens to be your first time listening to the Learner's Corner podcast, I do want to tell you about a couple of things that inform pretty much everything that we do here on the podcast. And the first is this, is that we want to create a safe place to have difficult conversations, to have dangerous conversations, because there are just some conversations. And as we're going to talk about today in my conversation with Sky, there are just some conversations that people just don't want to have. And that can be very true as it pertains to the church as well, and the role of the church and what the church is meant to be and what it is um, maybe maybe become, at least in in America. The other thing is that we truly believe that we can learn from anyone and from everyone, regardless of whether or not we agree with them or not. And that sometimes we learn from their example of of, uh, what they got right, and other times we learn from what they got wrong and maybe where they failed as well. And then We also believe that we can learn from anything and from everything. And we're going to cover a little bit about that uh, in in our conversation as well, whether that be something trivial or something a little bit more serious. And the last thing is this, is that we truly want to become the person who was there for us. Maybe the mentor that we had growing up or young or early in our professional career, maybe the person that we have today. And maybe you don't have that person. And maybe for you, it's the motivation that you want to be the person that you wish that you had. And so that's a lot of what informs what we do here on the Learner's Corner podcast. Now, if you enjoy this uh, topic or whether or not you've been listening for a while, the best way to keep up with everything that we're doing here on the Learner's Corner is subscribing to my newsletter, which I will put in the show notes, but is simply... Uh, you can subscribe by simply going to getreview.co slash profile slash learners corner. We'll link to that in the show notes. And in that newsletter, I just send all of the things that I am currently learning from and some of the things that I'm learning about and some of the things that I'm thinking about. And so if you're constantly looking for new things to think about and to learn about, hit subscribe to that newsletter and you won't miss anything. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Sky and then we're going to dive right into my conversation with him. Sky Jatani is an author, speaker, and former pastor who spent more than a decade reporting on issues of faith and culture for Christianity today. He now co-hosts the Holy Post podcast, a weekly show that blends cultural and theological insights with comical conversation. He has authored 11 books, including two other books in this series, What If Jesus Was Serious and What If Jesus Was Serious About Prayer. Sky and his wife Amanda now have three children and reside in Wheaton, Illinois. And one of Sky's, I guess you could call her uh, co-workers or definitely co-hosts on the Holy Post podcast has been on this in Caitlin Chess as well. And so if you missed that episode, we will link to it in the show notes and you can go back. But without any further wait, here is my conversation with Sky Jatani. Well, Sky, it's so good to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today. Thanks for having me, Caleb. Yeah, and just as we're getting started, you know, one question that I love to ask people from time to time is, and I would be curious to ask you about, is I would just love to hear what's capturing your attention, your imagination, your your curiosity right now. Uh, What's catching my curiosity is the new Amazon series that's coming out about the Lord of the Rings, (laughs) the Rings of Power, and all the fanboys freaking out and already condemning this thing before it's been revealed so i'm i'm curious about that which doesn't sound all that spiritual or deep (laughs) um and i I mean i read a lot for my own podcast because i'm always interviewing people like you have to do and so i recently read rich velotis's new book uh good and beautiful and kind i don't know if you've seen that book yet but it's a really really great book and he'll be on our show soon and so that's that's been on my front of my mind too yep I, I actually just talked with Rich for the podcast. And by the time that this conversation comes out, there you it'll go. be out. Yeah. Um, I do want to go back to uh, something that you, that you said, because and again, I, I, I picked this up through, um, through some of your writings and through, I think listening to the Holy post as well. 
is that what you were talking about with like the Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power, is that there is a tendency to go, oh, that is not right a spiritual thing. <laughs> However, I I think we could probably both say that there are things that you can take away um, sure. from that that have like a greater implication. I would just love to hear your thoughts on, you know, maybe just that yeah. tendency in us to to um, to dismiss like this this fun nature or like the Lord of the Rings yeah. or just whatever stuff. Uh, yeah, one of the things I like to speak on a lot and and drill into people is the importance of an integrated life where we don't segregate out spirituality from you know secular endeavors or whatever it might be. And going back to Rich's book, The Good, Beautiful, and Kind, uh, when you engage good literature or art of any form, movies, films, poetry, uh, novels like Lord of the Rings, invariably you're going to see things that are good and beautiful and kind and things that are reflections of God's presence in the world, a general revelation, if you want to use Calvinist language for it. And so I, I value that when I go into things like Lord of the Rings or yeah. whatever, I, I do a movie podcast a couple times a month with some friends of mine too. And, and those things come up, but sometimes to be honest, even when you don't see all of that, it's, and, and it is pure amusement. Um, it's just the joy, the laughter, the uh, the wonder of something ridiculous. There's something good in that too. I mean, Jesus was criticized all the time by the religious leaders for behaving frivolously and why are you hanging out with these people and why are you eating and drinking and shouldn't you be more serious? And no doubt he had serious moments, but we are uh, fully orbed human beings. You read the Psalms, for example, the largest book in the Bible, it covers the entire spectrum of the human divine relationship from deep seriousness and grief and sadness and anger and doubt and joy and celebration and happiness and contentment. I mean, it's all there. And so I think sometimes we limit ourselves too much and saying, well, these emotions and these behaviors and these activities honor God, but these other ones don't. And that's an insanely ridiculous way of operating in life. And uh, too many churches and Christian communities do that. Instead, I want to see my communion with God integrated into everything I do, even the stuff that the world looks at and goes, oh, that's incredibly ordinary. Yeah. What's what's something, you know, book or, or podcast or media or anything like that, that that has done that for you recently? Uh, I recently read, I was on more or less a vacation and I read... Um, Malcolm Gladwell's recent book, the the Bomber Mafia. I don't know mm. if you're a, a Gladwell fan. I am. Yeah. Yeah. I, I Malcolm stuff. I love reading history. Uh, my grandfather was a a navigator on the B-17s in World War II over Europe. So a lot of the book is about that kind of stuff. So it kind of brought to mind all the stuff I learned from him. Uh, and, and it's actually a, a fascinating study in different approaches to war. And that doesn't sound very godly or spiritual but it actually there was this i don't know if you're familiar with the book or the the narrative behind it but there was this group of aviators in in the american air force in world war ii high ups in, in the american air force who really believed that we could figure out precision bombing even in the 1940s and they thought this is a way to save lives because if we can precision bomb certain factories we don't have to carpet bomb you know all of germany or all of japan there was another group that said no 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 it's not going to work we just need to carpet bomb and and those who wanted the precision bombing were some of them were deeply christian and wanted to figure out how to make war less deadly so it's a really fascinating study not just of history but how ethics comes into what we consider one of the most unethical things in the world which is war so i found it incredibly stunning a lot of uh, beauty and truth and goodness and even kindness at times and horror and just brutality. So it was a, a moving, interesting, intellectually stimulating book. And if I can become half the writer that Malcolm Gladwell is, I'll be thrilled. So I learned from from his own example of just winsomely telling a compelling story. Mm. Yeah, I, I'd love just to follow up on that a little bit. You know, you were touching about the or talking about the horror piece of it which i think it's it's almost like there's a level of like resistance to whatever is in the broader culture and then even the things that horrify us or you know the easy thing might be like scary movies and stuff like that um i'd just be curious maybe i don't know maybe you don't have any other thoughts on that but if you do i'd love to just hear them uh sort of the gory horror kind of stuff yeah well yeah, yeah. like what we could take away from that you know the, i don't think there's anything more horrific than the cross and we consider that the mm -hmm. centerpiece of our faith so if 
what we're when we look at the cross, either in our imaginations or in some artistic depiction of it, or reading it in the gospels, when we look at the cross, we are confronted with the horrific reality of evil in us and in the world. And that's an important meditation for Christians to do regularly. And the, the church calendar even has us doing that with some regularity. We do that at the communion table with some regularity, right? Remember, do this in remembrance of me. And sometimes, uh, both as Christians and as non-believers, there are artistic forms in our culture that bring the horrors of evil and the horrors of human nature in front of us. And that can be Malcolm Gladwell does that in this book when he talks about the firebombing of you know napalm in, in Japan in 1945. It's awful. It's horrific. Um, and sometimes fiction does that in horror movies. Or it, it, I think there's a difference when horror is done for amusement. You know, ha ha, that's hysterical. And when it's done to make you feel the gravity of yeah. human depravity. So there is discernment that's required there, but I don't think that art that's horrific is in itself ungodly. It's godly in the sense that it brings us to a place of, I mean, Paul talks about godly sorrow that leads to repentance. You know, when you are confronted with that ugly side of yourself and then humanity in general, it should awaken in you that desire for a savior, for repentance, for transformation, all those things. So that's an important part of our faith. It's an important part of uh, just being human. And I am grateful for the artists who can bring those difficult things in front of us in a way that's redemptive. Yeah. So you've recently released this brand new book called What If uh, What If Jesus Was Serious About the Church? And anytime that I talk with somebody, I love hearing like the story behind the work of art. And I know that this is, you know, a part of a series that you've done uh, too. And so I would just love to hear what inspired you to go, okay, I think I need to write, you know, about the church in this series. Yeah. Um, part of it is, I'm sure you're experiencing this too, but like everyone's freaking out about the church these days. And there's different yeah. levels to that. There's sort of the national level where we're seeing scandal after scandal of significant Christian leaders or ministries. Um, we are seeing massive swaths of the American evangelical church really, I think, being deeply uh, led astray by political ideology. We are seeing a massive number of people, especially younger people, abandoning any sense of faith of the church that they grew up in because they view it as hip hypocritical or completely incongruent with the values of the world that they want to live in. And the churches and its leaders are flailing to figure out what do we do from here? And I think many of them are very faithful, godly women and men um, who, and I was one of them, I was in church leadership for many years, who I think struggle with an imagination of what the church could be, because we've inherited certain forms, many of them wonderful, and they've served well for centuries in some cases, but they don't seem to be working the way we want them to today. And we, we need to rethink some of that. So all that kind of together in my mind going, all right, if I'm going to continue this series on what if Jesus is serious, I probably should talk about the church because that's the question I'm hearing constantly yeah. from my readers and my listeners. So uh, that's what brought me to it. Yeah. And one one of the things that is just so apparent, and it got me really curious about it too, is you reference um, this book called Church Refugees mm -hmm. all throughout the book. And as I was getting ready to prepare, I thought, I can't believe that I haven't like I haven't heard of this book because I figured, you know, it's fairly recent and it's not. Like you're no. referencing this stuff and it's it's from like twenty fifth like I think like around twenty fifteen. And it just put greater perspective to me of going like, oh, because it's so easy to think like it's the moment and again right. twenty fifteen is not that far away. <laughs> right. Either. Um but I would just love to just talk with you about um, some of the, some of the big takeaways from that book and kind of like that like the study and the research that they did it. Yeah, it's a it's from Springtide Research and that's led by Josh Packard. He's been on my show a couple of times, and I don't think Spring like Barna is really really well known in evangelical circles. And mm -hmm. David Kinnaman, president of Barna, is a very good friend of mine. Uh, but Springtide's not as well known in evangelical circles. They work more in mainline and Roman Catholic circles. But I think their research is also really really helpful. And what Packard and his team uncovered. And these are trends you mentioned, oh, this is a while ago, it's 2015. I think what we're seeing both in the church and culture and politics is everything we're seeing right now that seems so dramatic and stunning. It's it's fruit from seeds that was planted a long time ago. They didn't, yeah. you know, Donald Trump, for example, didn't pop out of nowhere. There was decades of development in the Republican Party that led to him. Similarly, the current dynamics we're seeing in the church aren't 
you know, emerging straight out of Donald Trump or anything else recent, it's been growing for decades. And what Packard and his team uncovered was they wanted to find out why were people leaving churches? And so they did thousands and thousands of interviews of people who left churches. And the assumption going in, which is the same one I would have held, is the people leaving are those who weren't really holding to their faith strongly to begin with. And then something kind of tipped them over the edge to go, I don't, I don't need this church thing anymore. And what they uncovered was precisely the opposite, which is the people most likely to leave are actually the most spiritually committed to their faith, the most mature in their faith, the most dedicated to, to Christ and the furthering of his mission in the world, which is a stunning reversal of expectation. So they want to know why. And what they kept hearing from the people they interviewed was that the church, the institutional church, was more of an impediment to the development of their faith than an asset. And they felt like they were getting, some of them had been elders, they'd been deeply involved, they'd been deeply uh, meshed in the machinery and the volunteer work and all that and believed in it, but came to this place of realizing there was a difference between the institutional mechanism of this church and the community of believers to whom they were called. And there's a difference between further furthering the agenda of this nonprofit institution and furthering the advancement of God's kingdom, that those things are not always synonymous. They don't always overlap. And a, and a bunch of these people are going, if I'm going to survive in my faith, if I'm going to continue to develop, if I'm going to continue to serve Christ in the world, I can't do it in that 501c3 institution anymore. It's 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 killing my soul and it's ruining my relationships and it's breaking me as a as a person. It's toxic, in other words. Um, Scott McKnight and his daughter have written this fantastic book called the, A Church Called Tove, which is all about mm -hmm. the toxicity versus Tove or goodness of the church. That's what they were uncovering years ago, is the people with the greatest discernment and spiritual wisdom were recognizing, oh my gosh, my church is toxic. And I gotta get out of here for the sake of my soul. And that I think should give us pause when our churches and many church leaders would agree with this. I and mean, we're seeing a record, num record number of people leaving church leadership as well. So there's something fundamentally broken in a lot of our church communities. And I, I think too many of us attribute that, well, it's just being led by bad people. It's just, you know, character issues and it's pastor leaders or elders, certainly a problem. But I think there's something more systemic going on in the way we've conceived of the church that is yielding this really toxic fruit. And when your leaders and your godly women and men and most dedicated to Christ, when they're the ones who are leaving, that should give you a great deal of pause. It's not the wayward, backslidden, uh, you know, carnal Christians who are going, I don't want the church anymore. Well, it's like, yeah, you expect them to have a problem with the church, but it's the opposite. Mm. Yeah. Talk, talk to me about that systemic nature that you were talking about and some of some of the ways that um, you've seen it play out either recently or stuff that has been been happening for years. Yeah, again, I, it's not recent. It's It's been here for a long, long time. Um, I don't want to oversimplify it, but <laughs> uh, here's an overly simplistic yeah. response. <laughs> uh, I, since I was a kid in the 1980s, I, I could not obviously have identified this at the time, but looking back, I see it. Since the 1980s, I think churches in America became enamored with the power and effectiveness of corporations. They saw how good they were at reaching people, at selling a product, at impacting the world. And they became enamored with those systems and models and ways of leading. And they more and more started mimicking them in the church and professionalizing church leaders. And I've, when I was at Christianity Today, part of, um, leadership journals team, the, the magazine we had for pastors, I interviewed pastors all over the country, big churches, small churches. And one of the things I kept bumping into was some of them overtly would say this, but sometimes it was just implied. They didn't really see themselves as pastors. They saw themselves as the CEOs of significant nonprofit ministries. And they ran things like a large institution or CEO would do it. And so when when you look at American corporations, you know, American workers burn out more than others. They take less vacation time than others. We have higher divorce rates. We die younger than other people. You know, American corporate culture is incredibly effective in the marketplace. No question about it. But it's pretty dehumanizing to the people who are enmeshed in those systems. And so when you bring those systems into the church, we shouldn't be surprised that, yeah, you might grow a big ministry. You might reach a lot of people. 
But what's going to be the human cost of that? How much dehumanizing is going to happen to those who are pulling the levers and you know cogs in the wheels and in the in the machinery of it? And that's what I think we're seeing. That's why the people most enmeshed in these systems, leaders, paid staff, Christian uh, elders and others are going, I, I can't do this anymore because it's killing my soul. Well, surprise, surprise, you're seeing the exact same outcome you get from American corporations. Yeah. I think that's a big piece of this. And it's not just a mega church problem. I see this in small churches. Um, I think we have just made the church very inhumane and it's not a very um, healthy and nourishing environment for humans and human souls. And we say we're doing it to nourish humans and human souls, but we sacrifice them in the process. And that's, that seems wickedly uh, idolatrous and pagan to me mm. and, and not like what I read in the New Testament. Yeah. And all throughout the book, you give so many different examples of like, this is, this is how we have valued, you know, these business principles or even like, even like these leadership principles that are, that are common practice. Yeah. Um, over following Jesus. And so um, you mind just touching on maybe, maybe just one that uh, comes to mind that you, that we would go, Oh, that is a great leadership thing, or that is a great business thing, but that may not be how to follow Jesus. Yeah. Okay. Let, I'll, I'll probably, let me just go for the jugular. Yeah. Go for it. <laughs> and, and talk about one that I think, I think is really toxic and broadly accepted as just the way it should be done. And that is the assumption, particularly in evangelical churches, the assumption that the foundation of the church is its mission. And we all have a mission statement yeah. and we all craft it and we put it in our websites and we paint it on our walls and we draw attention to it all the time because that's what corporations do. They have a mission statement, a, a BHAG, right? Big, hairy, audacious goal, whatever it might be. And we try to rally everyone around that mission. And it also, it's so enticing because it seems so biblical. Right? I mean, Jesus gave us a mission. Go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, like he's and we just reword it in some other way. It's like, well, Jesus was all about mission. We're all about mission. We've I've written, not written, I have read countless books on the missional church, and many of them are brilliant. And I agree with a lot of the theology there. I'm not in any way denying the importance of the mission. But the foundation of the church is not a mission. I'm sorry. It's not a mission statement, certainly. The foundation of the church is Jesus Christ himself. And that mm -hmm. he says that on this rock, I will build my church. Paul says that when he talks to the Corinthians, the foundation that was laid is Jesus and others are coming and building upon it. The mission matters, but it's a mission that's rooted first and foremost in communion with Christ himself. And I think what happens because we have followed the American corporate model is we bypass that communion with Jesus and we try to root people in dedication to his mission. And then we're surprised when they don't bear love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, you know, they don't, yeah. that's not in their life. Instead it's anxiety and stress and burnout and anger and jealousy and all the other rotten fruit of American corporate culture, because as good as the mission is, it can't give you life and it won't sustain it. So I think that's just one of the, and again, small churches, large churches, doesn't matter. We just assume, well, this is how effective businesses do it. It's how the effective church does it. It's how we should do it. And we need to really slow down and go, okay, am I doing this because I'm an American or because I'm a Christian? Yeah. And when we examine the New Testament, I don't see that as the foundation of the church. Yeah. Uh, another thing along similar lines that I want to I want to ask you about, and I don't I don't know if you touch on this in the book. I can't, I can't remember it off the top of my mind, but I do want to ask you about like church leadership mm -hmm. as well of like the role of that. Because like one of the, one of the things that I've just been thinking about is like, okay, so what is the role of a leader in the church? Mm -hmm. Because ultimately like what you were saying, we want to point everybody to Jesus and that, well, at the same point, whether we like it or not, some people are, some people are looking to us as that leader. And so I would just love to hear your thoughts on like, how do you, how do you manage that tension between it? Because like, I, because it's just a very difficult thing that like, I struggle with because I know that I'm not perfect. Like I'm, I'm obviously not Jesus or, right, right, right. or anything. Well, I'm still responsible to people as well. Yeah. And I mean, there's a lot obviously in the new Testament yeah. about leadership. Um, yeah. and, and Paul, Paul, yeah. Paul says it's a good thing to aspire yeah. 
to be a leader. It's almost, I, but you know, the, the metaphor I use throughout the book, because I think it's the most dominant metaphor throughout the New Testament for the church, is it's a household, it's a family. Mm-hmm. Being a father is a good and admirable thing. Being a mother is a wonderful and admirable thing. It's challenging, it's hard, but it's a godly calling. And I think Paul, especially in his pastoral epistles, uses the language of family. He even says, you know, consider older men and women as fathers and mothers and younger ones as sisters and brothers. Like he's using household language there. And when he comes to talking about leaders and elders and things like that, he's using rather patriarchal language, but it's still that of of a, a patriarch of a household, a father of a household. And in his household codes throughout his letters, there's a sense of yeah, you need to lead and guide, but you also need to nurture and not exasperate and not burden people. And so um, I think the challenge for us is it's good to be a leader, but you understand that your function as a leader is to seek the flourishing and well-being of those under your care. Mm-hmm. Jesus, John 10, uses the analogy of a shepherd, right, who who protects the flock, who guards the flock. And, you know, the, the, the paid hired hand doesn't do that. He just flees when trouble comes. So I think the difference is, again, when you you don't see that kind of nurturing language frequently in American corporate culture, yeah. you know, you see the language of human resource that. I'm a manager. You're my resource. We have a transactional relationship. I'm trying to get as much from you. You're trying to get as much from me, which creates, um, as many things are in our capitalist society, a, a competition in order to create more value. It works brilliantly in the marketplace. Can you imagine if you ran your family that way? Could you imagine if you viewed your children as human resources that you're trying to extract value from? But that's precise. We don't use that language because it's crass. But I think one of the most diagnostic questions that churches should be asking, both people in the pews and people in the pulpit, is does my pastor primarily want to love me or use me? And if it's the latter, they're not a pastor. They're a business manager. And on the flip side, if you are a pastor and you're looking at the people, and you need to ask, are they through me developing their own communion with God, or are they expecting me to be the conduit of God for them? In other words, are they viewing me as a priest or as a pastor? And a priest is a bridge, a conduit. So one of the arguments I make in the book, and this is in a section actually where I'm talking about the communion table, is that even in churches that don't celebrate communion often or never at all, they're still highly, highly sacramental. Because liturgical traditions, Anglican, you know, Roman Catholic others, they tend to view the table or the bread and the cup as the place where God's grace and presence is mediated to us. In low churches that don't celebrate communion often, they're still sacramental because they see the personality of the pastor or the preacher as the conduit of God's presence and grace. That, I believe, is a recipe for disaster. Because then you are creating a um, a very dependent uh, priesthood where everyone is depending on that pastor to be this conduit. And I'm sorry, but anyone who's been in that role, like you said, we're flawed people and we're going to fail, but we're not allowed to because you need to be a conduit of God's presence, which creates a toxic uh, environment for sin to flourish in the life of the leader. It creates an unhealthy dependency upon the people, and it creates incredibly fragile churches because when or if that leader ever fails or leaves, everyone's faith is devastated. And that's not nurturing. Like if if my children are still utterly dependent on me when they're 30 years old, then I have failed in some way as a father, right? Or they have significant yeah. deficiencies that you know we didn't see early enough. But yeah. we don't tend to have that attitude in the church. We think, well, if people are still utterly dependent on me as the preacher— We've done something good. That's spiritual retardation. It's not spiritual maturity. But a lot of our systems are created to foster that dependency, which is precisely the opposite of what the New Testament says leadership is supposed to be doing. Mm. Yeah. And and talking about leadership, another thing that you talk about, which was, again, it was just a good mind shift as well. You talk about servant leadership oh, yeah. as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I kind of blow that one out of the water. <laughs> yeah. Let's, let's go there. Um, I know it's super popular and it's not all bad. Um, yeah. I think our, when we hear the, the phrase servant leadership, what we tend to think of are people in high positions who are willing to engage in lowly activities. 
So the senior pastor, right? Significant position of authority and visibility in the church, but oh, look at him. He's you know willing to shovel the snow on Sunday morning, or he's emptying the garbage can in, in the church kitchen or whatever. Like, isn't he's such a servant leader? Isn't that great? And that is great. I'm not opposed to that at all. Yeah. That's not servant leadership. That is not what Jesus was speaking about in John 13 with the scene of him washing the apostles' feet. Nobody who was in the room that night when Jesus put a towel around his waist and started washing feet, no one thought to themselves, oh, isn't that's amazing. Look at him. He's he's the Messiah and he's washing our feet. I That's fantastic. Isn't that great? No, what we see in the story is that the disciples, especially Peter, is mortified. They think this this is an insult. And when he gets to Peter, of course, he says, you know, you'll never wash my feet. And Jesus says, unless you let, let me wash your feet, you can have no place with me. What's really going on there is you have to understand the uh, the ancient Jewish relationship between rabbi and disciple. Peter's entire identity was defined by who his rabbi was. And up to that point, that was a pretty good deal because he left the fishing business to become a rabbi, a follower of Rabbi Jesus. And Jesus like performed miracles and he raised the dead and he fed multitudes and he thought he was going to go into Jerusalem and take over the world basically. And Peter's like, my status is going up, 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 up and up. And then he sees his rabbi utterly humiliate himself by doing the most disgusting and lowly job of a slave, washing people's feet. And the reason why Peter is so horrified by this is not just that Jesus is humiliating himself, but in the process Jesus is intentionally humiliating his followers because he's saying, hey, if I do this and I'm your rabbi, if I'm your master, how much lower are you? So Jesus was deconstructing their pride and arrogance. And then at the end of the story, of course, he says, you should do what, what I've done. The servant leadership that we see exhibited by Jesus is leadership that is willing to be seen as foolish and, and, and humiliated in the eyes of the world. So the real question is, if you're a leader in the church, not are you willing to wash dishes or change diapers, all those things, that's great, do that, I'm not opposed to it. But the real thing is, are you okay with people not liking you? Are you okay with not being respected? Are you okay with getting up in front of your church on a Sunday and saying the really hard thing that you know is gonna upset people, but in faithfulness to God and in protection of the flock needs to be said? Are you willing to wash their feet, even though they don't want you to, and they're going to hate you for it, but you know in faithfulness to God and for the betterment of their souls, it needs to be done. That is servant leadership. And that's something we don't really talk about at all in the church today. So yeah. um, by all means, do those menial tasks, help out, you know, let's carry the burdens of the church as a community and household together. But real servant leadership is being willing to surrender my pride and need for affirmation and to be seen as a fool by my own people and my own friends, if necessary, in obedience to God. Hmm. Another thing I wanted to ask about, and you just touched on it, is like part of, part of the church is cha challenging people as yeah. well. And you talk about, and, I, and I, would, I would completely agree, is that sometimes church could just be very comfortable in it. And sometimes the tendency is like, I'm just going to show up to church. I'm going to sing some songs. I'm going to hear a message. I might not, I'm probably not going to do anything with it. Um, but how do you, how do you speak into that environment? If like, maybe you, maybe you haven't done a lot of challenging before and trying to move at like a, um, like, I guess like at a good pace and not like you challenge so much that it's like, everybody's like, Oh, we're leaving. Does that make sense? Yeah. Again, I think the metaphor of parenting or the household that is so frequent in the New Testament is really important here. Do you have children, Caleb? I do not. Okay. No. Well, you've been a child. I have. Been. Okay. And, yeah. and uh, I'm a former former student pastor and okay. kids pastor. So, yeah. Well, I'm assuming you had uh, parents or parental figures in your life that at some point disciplined you. Mm -hmm. Now, if they do that too aggressively in a way that uh, Paul warns us again, to the fathers, don't you know overly discipline your children, don't overburden them. If you overly discipline your children, you're going to break them to the point where they're no longer going to, the, the love and trust and all that's not going to be present. They're not going to flourish. But if you never discipline them, it's going to be a disaster, not just because they're going to be like tyrants, but because they themselves will not flourish without boundaries and discipline and, and 
the writer of Hebrews talks about this, that our earthly fathers disciplined us a little while based on their wisdom, but our heavenly father disciplines us for our own growth and benefit. Um, similar thing with church leadership. Like if, if you as a church leader or pastor are only ever encouraging, which is vital, you have to do that as a parent. But if that's all you ever do, you shouldn't be surprised that your spiritual children are malnourished, they're they're hopped up on you know sugar and junk food, and they're not going to grow and develop. They need discipline. And the wisdom needs to come in and the discernment with, okay, how do I lovingly bring discipline to this flock in a way that they can receive it, at least most of them, and in a way that is for their flourishing. I, here's my bias. I think, and I know some pastors who do this so beautifully, I think that when people really really know that their pastor loves them. They can hear those hard words. But when they only ever see their pastor from a distance on a screen or in a pulpit, and they have no relationship, and the pastor doesn't know you at all, and that pastor gets in the pulpit and starts wagging a finger and saying something hard, those people be like, who the hell does he think he is? I'm out of here. You know, I'm not going to take this. Yeah. So you have to build that trust. And that's harder to do in a large setting. It's harder to do where relationships not present. It's hard to do when as a pastor, you never get outside the walls of your church and engage your people where they work or where they're at school or where they spend their days Saturday through or Monday through Saturday. It's really hard to do that. And because most pastors, and I put myself in this category when I was in church, when I was in church leadership, most of us never spend any time with people outside of the church. We don't know their lives. We don't know their circumstances. We don't build deep relationships. And so we're terrified of doing anything that might be seen as disciplinary or or a prophetic word from the pulpit that would be uh, you know a correction. So we stay away from it entirely because we intuitively sense we have not earned the relational credit to pull that off. And so instead, we just keep trying to win people over with positive, 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 make it more comfortable, make it more what they want to hear. And part of that's just the fact that we live in America. There is no state established religion. It's a free market and people can go wherever they want. And in a free market system, the consumer is king. And so we we pander basically to our consumers and give them what they want. That's why we have to re-engage this vision of the church as a household and leaders as parents of that household and children as uh, entrusted to our care for a little bit to nurture and grow them to maturity. That's a better model than consumer and provider. And in, until we break that assumption, I am not surprised that the church isn't saying hard things or, or surrendering people over to the the formation that they're getting from the media and culture. Hmm. Yeah. Talk to me more. And, we, and we've touched on it some, and you cover it a lot in the book about the implications of the church more as a household as well and where where you see hey we we can get better at being a household in this or what are some of the things that we can do to make it more like a household as well yeah I, you know even in large uh what we would consider more corporate structured churches there's been an awareness over the last 20 30 years that they can't survive only being that way which is where the small group movement really came from yeah. it's this realization that oh wait people actually need relationships so um I would, there's, there's a couple different things going on here. I think you can probably find the real church pretty much anywhere. You could be part of a mega church of 10,000 people, but within, and that's not the church. That's just a large mm -hmm. 501c3, you know, very large ministry. The church is going to be those people that you actually do life with, mm -hmm. you know, the women and men who are your spiritual sisters and brothers, mothers and fathers, um, and as you foster that connection, the people who have the relational credibility to bring correction into your life, the people that you trust enough to confess your sins to, the people that you go to in, in a struggle for mutual encouragement and to spur one another on towards faith and good deeds, as Hebrews tells us, like that's your real church. So in whatever system you're a part of, cultivate that. Now, there's the other side of it, which is that institution, that 501c3 thing, that, that stuff we call the church. I would love to see those things actually foster and cultivate and encourage those human household of faith kind of dynamics. But at the very least, Hippocratic Oath kind of stuff, just do no harm. Yeah. And unfortunately, I think what we've become aware of in recent years with all the scandals is a lot of the institutions are actually actively doing harm 
to the real church, to that organic community. So where harm is actually happening, those structures need to either be uh, raised or reformed where they are neutral. They're not doing any harm, but they're not really doing any good. They maybe need to be tweaked and rethought to go, how do we strategize and, and deploy the resources of the structure to cultivate those organic household communities of faith kind of things? And, and where it's working, where people are engaging deeply relationally and there's mutual encouragement and and grounding and rootedness in Christ, great, let's add fertilizer. <laughs> let's, yeah. let's cultivate that and make it grow more. So I'm not here to propose like, here's the right structure to do church. Any structure can be abused. And within any structure, you can find the real church. But some structures do uh, cultivate it better than others. And if they're actively doing harm, then that's a problem that has to be addressed immediately. Yeah, talk to me about like the the larger church, whether that's a church of a thousand, of a couple hundred, and some of the things that they can do to create that more like that household environment. Because like for me, the first one that comes to mind is like slow down. Yeah. <laughs> but what are some other things that come to mind for yeah. you? Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the I, this isn't it's teased a little bit in the book, but I've written about it elsewhere in some articles and things. You know, one of the most um valuable resources most churches have is space physical space mm -hmm. like yeah. a, most churches in america have a building right that's a very expensive resource for most churches and the time you gather is a very valuable time because that's not easy to come by anymore i mean people are busy so when you gather people in a physical space that's like that's a massive opportunity a real resource that can be deployed for the cultivation of that household of that community. The way most of us use that incredibly valuable resource is incredibly stupid. We gather a bunch of people into the same space where they don't talk to one another and they sit passively and listen to one guy lecture for 30 to 40 minutes. That's terrible. Like every, yeah. every research project has shown that that is the single worst way to learn right? The, the, the lecture format is, a, I mean, I don't want to get into the history of preaching. I am a yeah. preacher. I get it, but it is a terrible use of our time and resources. So one thing I would, I would push is, Hey, if you have a building and you have people gathering weekly in that space, what's the best use of that time and space to cultivate the real church? How do you use that time and space to build relationships? How do you use it to give people a ravishing vision of who Jesus is through one another, through the table, through service, and not just through a lecture. There's a Bible teaching is massively important. I'm not yeah. arguing against teaching the Bible. I'm just saying the sermon, as we've typically known it, is a really terrible way of doing it. So I think that's one thing that almost any church in America should put on the table and say, okay, we have this resource. Is it, are we deploying it as faithfully as we could to cultivate the kind of community that Christ is calling us to be? And what would it look like? What can we experiment with? How could we do it differently? Now, if you do that, people are going to lose their minds because they think they're coming to hear a lecture or and yeah. a musical performance. Um, and you know, it takes a lot of wisdom to know how do we change that. But I think it's something we need to consider more and more. Hmm. Yeah. Another idea that I want to uh, get your thoughts on and talk about is you talk about how important it is for us to define what a disciple looks like as well. And it's just as we were talking to, it really hit me even more like comparing it to the household metaphor as well. Like you probably have a picture of, well, this is, this is the type of man or woman that I want my son or daughter to become. And obviously, you know, they, they have their own free will and they figure out sure. all of that stuff. Um, but yeah, can you just talk to me and tease out kind of what that can, what that can look like and maybe even, um, what that should like, should look like. Yeah. Uh, I joke in the book that, you hear a lot of churches say, well, we're, we want to be a church that is full of disciples who make disciples who make disciples, but they never actually get around to defining what a disciple is. And when yeah. I was interviewing some of these pastors over the years, what would get teased out either explicitly or implicitly is that in their mind, a disciple is somebody who is actively engaged in the ministry infrastructure of the church. Yeah. In other words, a disciple who's making more to say, or, or a, a church member who's growing more church members and getting more church members involved in expanding the footprint of the institutional church. And in marketplace parlance, we would call that a pyramid scheme. And it's technically, according to the Federal Trade Commission, illegal because 
a pyramid scheme is just a way of recruiting more people into your you know, economic system without actually provi providing any real product. The gospel does not call us, and the church mission is not a pyramid scheme. We are called to make disciples, which Jesus defines as those who obey everything he has commanded. So what does it mean to cultivate people to learn to trust and obey Jesus in all areas of their life? So, um, you know, my goal, I have three children. My goal with my children is not just that they reach an age of sexual maturity and then produce more children. All three of them are at that age right now. I don't yeah. want any of them reproducing children yet, right? <laughs> my goal, my goal for them is I want them obviously to have a character that is uh, a reflective character of who God is. I want them to be self-sufficient. I want them to be able to manage money and contribute to this world in a in a vocation that cares in, about God's world and the people in it. I want them to have wisdom. I mean, I, there's there's so many facets to what it means to be an adult human being, yeah. and potentially one day biologically reproducing is only one small piece of that. So similarly with disciples, like fellowship is about obeying Jesus in every facet of our lives not just what we do in church. And that takes a great deal of relational engagement. So a church that makes disciples has to define what is a mature disciple in our community in the 21st century in America look like? Because it's not going to look like a rabbi in the first century. Yeah. It's going to be very different. And then how can we um, connect people in relationship with one another like if if you are if you are an eighteen year old and you are going into uh, I don't know finance as a career or you're going to be an auto mechanic, is there another auto mechanic who's older and wiser and more mature in their faith in our community that we can connect you to so you can yeah. learn what it means to be an auto mechanic who follows Jesus? If you're in the world of finance, is there someone else who's been in that world? Or if you're going into education, whatever it might be. We do a pretty good job in a lot of churches, I think, of teaching people what does it mean to be a godly husband or father or mother. We do the household kind of stuff, but we don't do the larger stuff. What does it mean to be a Christian in a democracy and engage in politics? Yeah. I'm a political creature. We all are in a democracy. To do that in a way that honors Christ. What does that look like financially? What does it look like in my profession? So I think that's more what it means. And that has to happen through relationship, not just mm -hmm come hear me preach every Sunday and you'll have everything you need to, I don't think any pastors really believe that, but yeah. the way we structure our churches and what we measure implies that we think that's the way disciples are made. And it just doesn't work that way. Yeah. Well, I got one other thing I want to ask you, but before that, is there anything just top of mind that we haven't covered like in <laughs> relation to our, I know that, that's, that's a huge question, but I'm just, that's why I go top of mind. Is there anything top of mind, you know, that it pertains to our conversation or anything that you want to make sure? that we cover. No, no, no. I'm happy to go wherever you want. There's nothing I'm okay. like, oh, I want to get to this. Yeah. Okay, cool. The last thing that I want to ask you about is you close the book by talking about this idea of anti-fragile, which I think is from, uh, I think it's Nassim Tlaib. Right. Is that? Yeah. And so basically, you know, the premise is, is that, you know, whenever, whenever, uh, some objects face obstacles and stuff, they, they break. But this idea of anti-fragile is that when they face obstacles, when they face challenges, they actually become stronger yeah. than that. And you say that, that that can be the role for the church, that whenever we face obstacles, whenever we face hardships, whenever we face challenges, we should become stronger. And I would just love your thoughts <laughs> on what are some, some steps that we can look to take, either as Christians or as the church, so that we can become more anti-fragile. Yeah. Um, Talib actually has three categories, right? You mentioned the fragile. We all know what that is, something that breaks easily when under stress. And then there's the robust object. That That's something that can withstand a great deal of stress and not break. And then he has this anti-fragile category, which is different than robust because rather than just not breaking, putting it under stress actually grows it stronger. Uh, lots of biological examples, right? Muscles. When you are lifting weights, you are creating micro tears in your muscle tissue, which then rebuild with protein and amino acids and make the muscle bigger. So the strain makes it bigger. And you see this beautifully illustrated throughout the scriptures, especially in the New Testament. The apostles write and tell us, James, you know, consider it pure joy when you undergo trials of many sorts, for it is for the testing of your faith. And it grows you. It develops you. Um, we understand that intuitively when it comes to biological and even emotional or 
um, the raising of children again, that keep going back to that. Like there's been a lot written and said lately about the fragility, the snowflake nature of the younger generation. And because they've been coddled too much, they haven't been allowed to experience stress, failure, discomfort. And so they don't grow. So we all kind of intuitively understand that if I'm going to grow my body stronger, my relationship stronger, even my faith stronger, it needs to be challenged. It needs to be put under stress. We get that. Well, the same thing is true for the church. And one thing that's really, really revealing is a lot of Christians, particularly in white evangelicalism, are absolutely losing their freaking minds right now about what's happening in America and the culture because they feel like the church is being put under stress. Yeah. Uh, we're going to lose our tax-exempt status. Gay marriage is going to be forced upon the church. Uh, we're not allowed to say Merry Christmas at Walmart, whatever that is that they're freaking out about, right? There's some, and, and people lose their minds about this. And they think that's justification then for, you know, I don't know, storming the Capitol or, or voting in some crazy tyrant or whatever. But what they're really revealing is they believe the church is fragile. And they fear that if these stresses, these cultural stresses are put on the church, it will fail and collapse. What they're really revealing is how completely both weak their faith is and their biblical ignorance. Jesus himself said that the gates of hell will never prevail against the church. His church is not just not fragile. It's not just robust. It is anti-fragile. That the more they try to destroy the church, the stronger it will get. That's what the cross is. The cross. I mean, all the forces of evil came down upon Jesus to destroy him. And he rose from the dead. That is, and he, not only did he rise from the dead, he rose glorified, right? He, his body was transformed and even more glorious than it was prior to the crucifixion. That's anti-fragile. That's the church. And that's why when you look around the world, you see that the church is growing rapidly, often in the places where it is most persecuted. So when I look at what's going on in America, and it's fair to you know be worried about various things, but overall I'm going... This is actually ultimately really good for the church because it will make us stronger. It will make us more resilient. It will make us more dependent on God rather than ourselves. So rather than meeting these challenges with fear and catastrophizing and, and losing our minds, we need to meet those challenges with faith, with hope, with perseverance. And then when you get down to, let's talk about like individual congregations. Yeah. Um, you know, we've, seen the stories in recent years of very large, very influential churches that have either completely closed their doors or come fallen very far because one leader made one mistake yeah. or maybe a series of mistakes. But when one leader is removed and the whole thing comes crashing, I call those Goliath ministries. You know, Goliath looked really big and powerful and one little rock from a shepherd boy and he was dead. So those are very, very fragile ministries. So any ministry or church that is built upon one person, one personality, or one uh, dynamic that could change and it crashes, that is a inherently, I think, unbiblical model of church. Whereas when you look at places like China, South America, other places where like the house church movement is really, really big, the Communist Party in China tried for decades to, to snuff out the church, and it only grew stronger. It got to the point where the Communist Party said, fine, we can't beat you. We're actually going to try to incorporate you into the party, right? That's the only option they had. So um, the house church movement is so different because you, you smush the church out in one place and it pops up somewhere else. And the leadership is diversified. You can put one leader in jail, you can martyr somebody and it keeps going. That's how the church has typically been anti-fragile throughout history. And I wonder if, because we've been modeling ourselves on corporations, we've also modeled ourselves on the fragility of American corporations. And maybe it's time for us to think long-term and go, oh, wait a minute. Maybe there's another way of doing this, which not only does a better job at, at a nurturing and cultivating and bringing about flourishing disciples, but also makes an anti-fragile church that whatever may come down the pike in American culture, politics, legal uh, regulations, doesn't matter because we can navigate around it because we don't have a fragile structure anymore. I see some places experimenting with that kind of stuff. Um, but as long as uh, American Christians are super enamored with having power and prestige and glory as the world defines it, 
we're going to continue to be very fragile. And in our fragility, we're going to be very frightened. And in our fear, we are not going to be capable of loving the way God has called us to. Yeah. And even as you were saying, it just reminded me of uh, that it helps us overcome death, too. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That is uh, it. Yeah. Well, Sky, I know that people are going to want to keep up with you, you know, get the book. What if Jesus was serious about the church? Where's the best place for people to go to do all those things? Uh, I know the publisher would love me to say go to moodypublishing.com <laughs> or .org, Moody Publishing and buy yeah. the book directly from the publisher. But, um, you know, if you're going to engage the book, yeah. please do it whatever recent, you know, source of book selling is best for you. Uh, and if anybody wants to follow my stuff, holypost.com, where our our podcast is is found and withgoddaily.com is my daily devotional that people can sign up for. Awesome. Well, Sky, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. And thanks, Caleb. Thanks for, yeah, thanks for doing the work and sharing it with us. My pleasure. I appreciate your time and, and uh, questions. So coming out of that conversation with Sky, there's a couple of things that I was thinking about. Right around, I think the first one is this, is right around the time of of just having this conversation with Sky, I was listening to an episode of the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. And he uh, recently, at least at the time that I'm recording this, had this conversation with Jim Bergen and Jesse DeYoung. And it was about the toxic church culture that they had created. And it became all about growth and how, um, and how the lead pastor's identity was so tied up in the success of the church. And it just reminded me so much of, in Sky's conversation, just reminded me so much of just that and that dynamic. And it's there. And what they talk about is their journey towards health. And they are very honest and very vulnerable and very real about how difficult things got and how challenging that things still are. But what they've done to work through and and grow through those things together. And also just realizing of how much business and leadership has infiltrated the church as well and and just knowing that there is a place for that as well while at the same point knowing that it just can't be the same that like what what sky was talking about as it pertains to um uh servant leadership and even what is the mission of the church and and also realizing what we may have given up in the church such as communion or or being afraid of speaking about challenging topics because we're afraid of losing people of the church you know, shrinking or looking like it's shrinking and, and, and just realizing that so many times throughout Jesus's ministry that he called people to a higher standard and he would, he would care for people. He would provide food for people. He would take care of them, all of that stuff. And then he would say, you know, and the, the passage that comes to mind so much is John six to where he's like, you know, eat my flesh, drink my, drink my blood, become a follower of me, pick up your cross and follow me. And they were just realizing that it was going to cost them something. And so just realizing, and again, if you've been listening for the podcast for a while, none of this stuff is new. We talk about this stuff so much on the, on the learner's corner, but just realizing what is the vision of what, of what the church needs to be and, and what what does the world need the church to be and how can the church get back to being a part of the kingdom of god and yes there's churches that are doing that as well but how can how can 
How can we make that the norm? And so those are just a couple of things that I'm thinking about on this. Now, if you have enjoyed this episode, the best way to keep up with everything that is happening here on the Learner's Corner is by subscribing to my newsletter, which you can find at getreview.co slash profile slash Learner's Corner. And if it's much easier, you could just find it in the show notes for all of that stuff as well. And that's all that I have for today. I do want to say thank you to Sky for being on the podcast today. Thank you to Sam Assey for creating the music for this podcast. Thank you for listening all the way to the end of the episode. My name is Caleb Mason. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing.